Amen. There's a little tension in that hymn, was there not? There should have been at least one verse in the present tense of the same fact. He is reigning over all of the earth without a shadow of a doubt, and yet that reign will come to a wonderful consummation still yet in our future. And yet as we now turn into his word, as we read about the great king and what he is continuing to do on this earth, even through his people, we now pick up our series where we left off in the last part of chapter 11 of Matthew. We'll be turning there as we now conclude this chapter as we think about what things Christ has been doing as he ministers to a doubting and unbelieving people. As we now turn our attention to the end of that chapter, we'll begin at verse 27 and we'll go through the end of the chapter. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I'm backing up to verse 25, let me do that. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it so seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our Father, teach us today with your spirit in our hearts, and stir up in us the warmth of this rest that we so long for to be consistent in our lives, dispelling the doubts and the lack of faith from our spirit, and having the spirit reign, applying the triumphant work of Christ, of the gospel to our lives, that as we leave here, we might all know the truth of the gospel, and we might know it and embrace our Lord Jesus Christ wholly, taking on his yoke willingly and joyfully and learning from him, and all of life. So we pray that you would take us into that lowliest state where we now will be teachable to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The text this morning is from verse 27 through 30. We are at the conclusion of a chapter where Jesus has been addressing people in their unbelief. Now, unbelief is not all the same, in at least different degrees. We have, even in this one chapter, anywhere from uh, doubts all the way to a hardened, stubborn, rebellious unbelief. In the immediate context of the passage before us, Jesus has given us two reasons why people do not come to him. What are the reasons of their unbelief? The first reason he gave to us, which spreads over verses 16 through 24, from the human side of things, is simply a willfulness. A willfulness. Pride. Stubbornness. People who simply will not listen to what God has to say. They're unteachable, they're unpliable, no matter what you tell them, warn them, or say to them, there is a willfulness here. On the human side of things, that's one of the reasons people struggle in unbelief and why they do not come to Jesus savingly. 
A former pastor of mine who was a woodworker, I remember talking with him one time about some of the frustrations of why some people, even in the church, do not uh, heed the, the word of God. And they make it so difficult on themselves. And I remember us saying, he said, you can't whittle punk wood. Well, I've never heard that expression before. And I went and looked at, well, what does that mean? Uh, and let me, as I looked it up again this morning to just make sure I had this right, the very top Google hit on punk wood says this in the very opening of the web page. Punk or punky wood is a soft, rotted area, usually in the center of a tree or log. This condition is usually caused by fungal infection and may not easily be identified from the outside. Punky wood can interfere with the woodworking project, such as turning, that is on a lathe or carving. However, punky wood is not always a problem. It works well as fire-starting material. <laughs> oh, Boy, how true is that particular statement that ought to get our attention. I hope you're not punk wood this morning. There's a willfulness in man's heart that keeps him from coming to Jesus, from keeping him from learning of Jesus, keeping the yoke off of him, the yoke of Jesus. But there's a second reason given in the text, and that is in verses 25 and 26. And we, we did read that just a moment ago. And this is a, from the divine perspective of why people do not come to Jesus. Because God does hide the truth from some so that they will not come. And therein is a divine prerogative of God. He is the potter and we are the clay. And as we come to this next text in this morning's passage, we come to the end of this chapter with the most beautiful, most incredible, wonderful, tender, loving invitation given in the context of a very hardened, unbelieving people. And isn't that just like our Lord? Isn't it the gentleness of Christ that leads us to repentance? As Romans 2, 4 would say. And how relevant that is for us today. Because we minister in a very similar environment in which Jesus was ministering in there in Galilee among the Jews. The environment all around us is filled with unbelief. Not just out in the world, but in the pew alike. And what Jesus does in this context of unbelief is to focus the attention upon Himself. And He does that in two sections. One in verse 27 and another one in verses 28 through 30. So let's look at that first section here that he now addresses and, and pulls people's attention to himself in verse 27 as he addresses the exclusivity of getting to God. The exclusivity of getting to God. About six months ago, the Pew... Research Center published a finding from a poll that they did across America. And in that poll, 80% of what they found, or 80% of the people that they polled, said that they believed in God. But when asked did they believe in the God of the Bible, then that figure went down to about 44% as across the, the, the nation, do you believe in the God of the Bible, now only 44%. As those same 44% were then asked, 
of that group, do you believe in a God that is all-loving and all-knowing and at the same time all-powerful and then the number keeps dwindling? With every subsequent question, smaller and smaller percentages to those who were professing Christians. While they thought they were believing in the God of the Bible, only a small percentage of them were actually believing in the God of the Bible. And there's a vast number of people in our world all around us today that believe that we can get to God in various ways. Whether that way is through one religion or another religion, or even within the, the Christian religion, either by good works or by some other means. Or maybe God will just happen to overlook everything. Or some other idea that they themselves have imagined, people believe that they can get to God in multiple ways. Notice the claim that Jesus gives in verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, as soon as the only way to God becomes very single, very exclusive, very narrow, people begin to start backing up a little bit. That's uncomfortable territory. People do not like to believe in the narrowness of the gospel. And I'm not talking about just out there. I'm talking about in here. Often you will run into people in the world and the church alike that has an interest in the things of God. They express that they desire to be a better person, a better husband, a better wife, and perhaps you can even say that this morning. But then if I were to ask you the question, are you willing to receive the knowledge that you are longing for and seek the truth for which you hope through the only channel that God has appointed to give it to you, then what would you say? And that's where the vast majority of people begin to feel trapped with that question. There's a sense of something in that exclusivity that they're not quite willing to yield to completely. And they start backing up. There is only one channel to God. One channel for victory in your life. And if you're not willing to receive that way, the only way that God has appointed, you will not be the recipient of it. Perhaps the more relevant question to you personally today is, are you willing to receive the spiritual help, the help for all your spiritual problems only through the one way that God has appointed for that to occur? When I asked that question, was there any recoil in your spirit? You know your context, you know the matrix of the mind and how you're thinking through even that question. You know all the attendant things that you brought and loaded into how you might answer. Was there any recoil in your spirit to only seek the exclusive way that God has planned for you 
for your spiritual problems. If there's any recoil, any rise against that very question, that's what I'm talking about. Okay? See, one of the big problems we have today in our own circles is that the world's understanding of God has crept into our churches, and many people in the church today do not believe in the exclusivity of the gospel to help them in their spiritual problems. They will turn to other kinds of therapy and counsel and ideas and other idols and other figments of their imagination or schemes of what they come up with or the science of the world other than the one exclusive and sole channel through which God has given for your spiritual problems. Do you really understand verse 27? Jesus is the unique revealer of God. And in fact, that you, when I say unique, he is the one of a kind, the only one of a kind revealer of God. The first part of that verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by the Father. God has delivered all things into the care of his Son. And how are we to know anything of God unless he first takes, takes the first step? I mean, God's invisible. He's commanded all knowledge of himself to the Son. And Jesus is the exclusive channel that God has appointed and provided. God the Father and God the Son know each other very uniquely, only they are eternal. We're not excluding the Holy Spirit here, but in the, the context of, of us and even in angels, God the Father and God the Son know each other uniquely. They are eternal. They know each other in no other way that any other human or angel can know. They are one. They are eternal. And the knowledge of themselves is reciprocal. And this verse points out of something of Jesus, the Son of God, that is even a mystery in itself. No one knows the Son. No one. He cannot be known unless it was His will and the Father draw Him. Apart from God's supernatural revelation of Himself through Jesus Christ, no one comes to God or even His Son. And the problem is that people are so reliant upon themselves in their own brains. You've got to stop and take in consideration your built-in limitations to your brain. You have to take into consideration the built-in limitations of science. The limitation of the capacity and the capabilities of your mind. That was true even before the fall, but how much even more so is it true after the fall where our faculties and every one of them from our heart, mind, and, and all of the ways that we think have been marred. We do have minds. And God expects us to use our minds, but to be a receiver of the revelation that He has for us. Not to be a mighty researcher, not to be a, a mighty reasoner, 
He expects you to put yourself in the place of a mere infant. Is that not what he just said in verse 25? I thank you, Father, that you've not revealed these things to the wise and the prudent. But you've revealed them to babes. Folks, if you're going to receive what Jesus is talking about, you have to be a babe in the woods on this one. No one knows God except for the Son, and that the Son wills to reveal Him. Now there in verse 27, when it does speak about and the one whom the Son wills to reveal, He's not talking about a desire of what He will do in that sense. This is a verb of volition, meaning that it's what Jesus desires to do. I desire to reveal the truth of God to you. you know, Paul was giving these same truths to a believing church in Corinth. A church that he founded, but a church that was riddled by so many problems of unbelief and carnal behavior because they had so much of the world in them. And there is so much Corinthian in the church of America today. But the people in that church that he was then expressing that letter in several letters to actually. Were people there in the church and because of the culture around them. They were still so reliant upon their brains and their research. And their mighty cognitive abilities and their brain power. That he had to write them specifically about that very thing. And he says in that passage that we read just shortly ago, the wisdom of God is that the world by wisdom will not know God. The world by their own wisdom cannot get to God. That's the wisdom of God. That that is true. By wisdom and knowledge, no one will ever arrive at the knowledge of God. He's writing this in a time... And even in a context when all the great thinkers and philosophers and poets from all of the ages, but particularly in their not so distant past, are now all encompassed in the statement, are taken into consideration that the wisdom of this world, it is the wisdom of God that through that wisdom and through all of those plans and through all of that thinking, all that machination, none of that will ever get anybody to God. And no one ever has since. And it's pleasing to God that no one ever will. Christ, the wisdom of God, the power of God, no man will glory in His presence. The only certainty and the only glory that God will have is glorying in Himself. And that's where He wants us, and that's how He has to bring us, and that's how He will find us, and that's how He will save us. And that's why we come to the second section where Christ then is going to point to Himself to an unbelieving and a doubting generation and a very hard, stubborn people into the context in which He's ministering. And He comes with these gentle words, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Do you ever feel that way? You are just weary and heavy laden. Life's a struggle. But you know what? Jesus is not just describing this to those who come. He's stating this as the necessary qualifications to come. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's laying down the conditions. Are you a person who's weary and heavy and a person that is laden down? Because apart from this, you are not in a condition to be a recipient of God and His grace. Unless people are in a certain condition when they come to God, they will not get the knowledge of the truth that their souls long for. It will be merely on the surface of things. We see so much today on the surface of things across all of those 80%, those 44%. We're living in a nation populated with a great many people who have attempted to come, but without meeting those necessary qualifications or conditions. In their viewpoint, they've tried. They've come to Jesus many times, but nothing's ever really changed or lasted in their life. Why not? Why is it that there's a cycle of attempt and failure, attempt and failure, and really nothing ever has stuck? Because it begins with a condition in which they will not come. See, people can only come to God in a broken condition. I mean, truly broken. There has to be a conviction down in the soul of man. A weary and a burdened state in their inner being. A sense of doing right that is so difficult that a person comes to despair and being so burdened about it. And when you get into that condition, and only when you're in that condition, you're in the condition to come to God savingly. If you come to Jesus in that condition, calling on Him, He will save you and give you rest. But you have to come to that genuine place down in your heart of hearts, in your soul, that you realize, and you really realize, that you need to be saved. That there is nothing that you can do, nothing in your hand you bring, There is no kinds of thinking that will help you. There's no kind of works that will will account for this. There's nothing except a broken and a contrite spirit laying bare before God. Crying out to the God of heaven to relieve you from the despair of your soul. You may be sitting here saying, yeah, yeah, that describes me. I am beaten down. I am bruised up. I started out with so much optimism. And now the years have gone by and my marriage is in shambles. My children have disappointed me. My finances are poor. My investments have failed. And my life is in turmoil. I feel so beaten down at it all. Yeah, that's me. 
But the question is, do you really feel beaten down in your soul? There. Deep in your heart of hearts. You come to despair in satisfying your conscience because all these years you have shut down your conscience. You've stopped listening to it and you shut it out and shut it down. But you will never be able to receive the ministry that Jesus has for you until you know yourself to be exactly as He is describing it here. I mean down with heavy laden and burdened with all of these matters down in the soul of man. Down in your spirit. Years ago, I was listening to a reformed pastor from the UK that had come over. He was associated with the Banner of Truth Trust, which, as you know, is a very reputable publishing company of old Puritans and he was probably a close modern day Puritan. And I remember him speaking of the gospel that he was invited to speak for a week long series of messages over the course of a week from the Lord's Day evening and then he finishes the next Lord's Day evening and every evening he was invited to preach in these series of messages. And after the first evening of that after the service was over, a young man approached him and informed him that he wanted to get saved. And I remember very clearly what this preacher said. He looked at the young man and he says, no, you are clearly not. That was it. The young man came back another night, and each night the young man came back, but there was another time when he came up to him somewhere in the midweek service, if I remember the story correctly, and he says, I want to get saved. The preacher said, um, I do not perceive that you are ready. Go and humble yourself. On the final evening of the services, on that Lord's Day evening, after the service was ended, here comes the young man again, but this time he didn't have to say anything. The preacher says, ah, I detect that the Lord has done a work in you. There would, was an internal posture inside of this young man that the preacher had some keen wisdom to see and perceive that this young man had not been yet burdened to the extent where he was in the condition to come humbly, But when God did a work on him through the preaching of the services that week, when he finally did come and he came on God's terms, there was an evident change that was noticed even externally. Now, so many people that I deal with and try to help have a hardened spirit. And I simply can't help them. People look to other people to try to help them in their spiritual needs. And I have to remind myself and I have to remind them I'm, I'm not Jesus. But if I can't help them in a particular posture of their heart, Jesus will not help them 
So nothing I can do will really avail. And it's very heartbreaking. When there is a pride and a stubbornness in someone's heart that they will not come on Jesus' terms. There's not something that they're willing to give up or they're not willing to yield to. They, they have their own terms and their own parameters and they, they want you in some way to kind of fix some of the matters on the surface, but they are not willing to come on Jesus' terms, broken, humble, contrite. You know, God takes broken things and uses them. If you're one that feels truly helpless and wearied and worn down inside, there's, there's something cold and empty. And when people are at that point, and by the way, much of the Word of God is to help people get to that point. If you're at that point, then thank God you are at that point. And if you are, then there's this wonderful invitation and it contains directions for you. And the first direction is, if you're that way, come to me, Jesus says. That's the first thing you do, is you go to Jesus. You don't go to the world, you don't go to God any other way, you don't go to other kinds of things, you don't go other places, you don't go to other philosophies, you don't go, you go to Jesus. The exclusive and only channel that God has provided for your soul. It's important to recognize the importance of Jesus, going to Jesus to get to God. It's not possible any other way. All of God's business is done through His Son. There's no shortcuts. There's no ways around it. There's no other bridges. There's only one bridge that God has provided between Him and mankind, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and heaven, between God and us. See, what, what he's saying here is we can only come to God on God's terms. What are those terms? What are the terms that God takes? He gives us directions right here. He says, you come and you take my yoke upon you. Now, are you ready to, for Jesus to lay his yoke upon you? This is what we've been talking about for 11 solid chapters now. This is the great king. Are you ready for this king to lay his yoke on you? This is a yoke of servitude. Are you ready to be a slave of Jesus? Are, are you ready and willing for him to lay his cause upon you? His interest upon you? It's going to require you then willingly to come and to lay aside all of your interest and all of your life and all of your other things. And that is why you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and put yourself to death in order to come so that he will lay his yoke and his interest and his will upon your life. To be his disciple so you can learn of him. It's heartbreaking to encounter people who have responded to Jesus in some way by joining churches and they started out and they heard sermons and they went to camp and they made multiple rededications and it has never really taken. They're not really changed at all. And churches are filled today with people like that. 
And perhaps there are some even among us who may be in that condition. Not ever really changed. Why is that? What's the answer to that? Because they never came to God on His terms through Jesus. They never came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. His terms are to give your yoke, give your neck over to His yoke. And learn from me, He says. A person who has put himself in a position where the Lord is his teacher and is willing to be instructed in the way he ought to go and the way he ought to live and the way he ought to walk in his life. That he says, this is the word of God and I will obey this. If it means life, I'm going to obey this. If it means sickness, I'm going to obey this. If it means my death, I'm going to obey this. So many professing Christians who are really never changed on the inside because they're not really prepared to give up control to the yoke of Christ. But when a people are prepared to do that, there's a promise here. It's the promise that really their souls have been longing for, that which they've been seeking. I will give rest to your soul. All that inner turmoil, all that inner disturbance, all the chaos and all the problems and the tumult going on in your heart, all the conscience issues that are going, I'm going to settle it. I will satisfy your conscience. I'm going to give rest to your soul. I will take away this awful sense of emptiness and disappointment. And inside, you will know that you will be at rest with God. That rest is supernatural. It's not a temporary peace. And it will be evident that God is at work in your life. Now, if any of you are in that condition, you need to come to Jesus who will address that condition. You're just worn out and tired, struggling with the burdens of life. I mean, down in your soul. We lay down all the alternatives in which you've been trying to receive satisfaction for your spirit. We just dismiss all of that and come to Jesus and let him lay his yoke upon you and make you his follower so that you can learn really of him now in ways that you have never realized. And if you will, he says, when I lay my yoke upon you, I will give you rest for your soul. And you will know it. And others will too. When the Lord is working on your heart about this, it's imperative that you hear the voice of Jesus and not allow your own thinking to reason you to delay about this very thing. Don't let yourself get distracted. Oh, that's what the world and society is all about today. It's filled with distractions. And the net effect of all of the entertainment and the amusements and the places you go to eat out and the the places to have fun and the things to do in life, it's murdering people's serious thinking about this very thing. It's 
So now it's time to think seriously about what Jesus offers here and to give yourself over to his glorious yoke to have rest for your souls. A gracious Father, I pray for any lost souls here today who may have been under the false pretense of security, but their life has never changed. Where there's inner turmoil that's going on in their hearts that their conscience is bothering but it can never be satisfied. Who've never given up complete control over to your yoke. Who continue to have tumult in their minds and spirit that rage against them and their life is not settled because there is no rest for their soul. And I pray that you would work great conviction and deepness in their heart of hearts and in their spirit, that they would give themselves over to the complete full reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, bowing their heart now and calling him Lord, calling upon Jesus, the only way to God to save them and to finally and once and for all to yield their entire lives over to the reign of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for believers here today who have slipped in their faith, who have struggled in their doubts, who have been looking for other, in other directions for only that which the gospel can address. Refocus our attention back to Christ. And oh Lord Jesus, may you will it to be done today in the lives of your people and strengthen us in the gospel. Humble us, we pray, that we might have your grace, that we would not glory in anything except the cross of Christ, that we would not glory in your presence because you will have none of it, that we would come soberly and humble-minded and that we would bow our knee willingly and that we might know of your rest today in satisfying all of those disturbances in our soul. And so we ask for the peace of God that passeth all understanding to be given unto us to keep our hearts and minds sound in our Lord Jesus Christ. Root us deeply into him, we pray. We ask that you would give us rest. May we enjoy this rest today and give us a great delight in our God for it's with great thanksgiving that we pray for this message and for your word and instruction and we thank you for Christ our God and King in whose name we pray, Amen.